You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former CIA Director John Brennan joined the Washington Post to discuss his new memoir, Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Washington Post. This morning, it's my pleasure to interview former CIA Director John Brennan, who is the author of a new book, memoir of his time in CIA and working at the White House called Undaunted. I had the privilege of reviewing it, so you can see my copy is just littered with yellow post-it notes for all the things that I wanted to think about uh, in the book, and I I commend it to to readers. Uh, Director Brennan, John, let me begin with what's in the news. Last night, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, a CI, rather FBI Director Chris Wray, Uh, both warned the country in an unusual primetime news conference about intervention in our elections by Iran and Russia. I want to ask you what you thought of that primetime performance, what you you think about this uh, allegation that the Russians and Iranians are are up to mischief, uh, and whether you think this is the kind of thing that uh, maybe should have been done at this time, right before the election, back in 2016. Well, good morning, David, uh, and thanks for uh, doing this interview with Washington Post Live this morning. Yes, I watched the statement that was issued by John Ratcliffe, the Director of National Intelligence, and Chris Ray, the FBI Director. I wish the Director of National Intelligence had more credibility because I think there are real questions about whether or not what he says is being motivated by his, his political interests. Uh, clearly, he is a very partisan supporter of Donald Trump and unfortunately has politicized his office by the selective release and declassification of some material that is designed to promote Donald Trump's prospects for re-election. And I haven't seen the material that they uh, refer to in terms of Iranian and Russian efforts to try to interfere in the election. I wouldn't be surprised if both countries are doing things, uh, particularly on the influence operation side, to try to shape the attitudes and views of Americans. Um, And interestingly, uh, Mr. Ratcliffe led off with uh, Iran and uh, then talked about Russia, but said that Iran was trying to damage uh, Mr. Trump, but didn't really say what the Russians are doing. I believe that the Russians are the most active foreign actor right now, again, trying to shape the attitudes, the views and the votes of American citizens. And I believe that Vladimir Putin and Russia, uh, Russia want to see Donald Trump reelected because I think uh, they see it very much in Russian interests. One particular point of what, what the, the two of them had to say last night was the allegation that Iran uh, was sending out messages supposedly in the name of a, of a right-wing group, the, the Proud Boys, to intimidate Democrats. And I found myself scratching my head. Why would the Iranians want to intimidate Democrats in this election. Did you find that allegation credible? I found it very curious, like you, in terms of just how they know that this is a uh, something that was initiated by Iran and the purpose of that effort, again, sending these uh, emails or these letters to individuals uh, misrepresent themselves as Proud Boys and trying to intimidate them as far as, you know, voting for Donald Trump. Uh, so I, I don't know. I haven't seen what is there. Chris Ray didn't talk about any of those details. Again, this came from John Ratcliffe, who I think has just basically undermined any credibility that his office and he personally has on, on these matters. 
Ratcliffe, uh, shortly before this, had issued another statement in which he said he didn't find any evidence of Russian disinformation in the way that the Trump campaign and the New York Post had obtained Hunter Biden's laptop with all the uh, incendiary, inflammatory uh, allegations that are that are there. What did you think about about that statement? Did, did that seem uh, well grounded or appropriate for a director of national intelligence? I don't know. Again, I scratch my head at whatever John Ratcliffe says on these matters, and just asserting something without providing any type of um, you know uh, information that is going to support that assertion. I think again just raises questions. So I think there are a lot of issues related to this New York Post story that uh, reportedly uh, referenced the Hunter Biden emails. And as uh, I and several of my former colleagues have pointed out publicly that it does bear the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Now, we don't know whether or not that is the case, uh, but there's just a lot of things that are cropping up now uh, that uh, may not be what they appear at first blush. And I do think it's important that uh, John Ratcliffe or, or Christopher Ray provides the underlying um, data or analysis uh, to support uh, their uh, conclusions and assertions. One more question before we leave uh, DNI Ratcliffe, and, and that is, what effect does uh, it have on career intelligence professionals when it's seen, by critics at least, that, that the person who's director of national intelligence coordinating the 17 intelligence agencies has a, a political agenda. Um, what, are the, what are the career officers at, at CIA or other agencies think when they're confronted with that? Well, I think it's first of all very demoralizing because it really runs counter to what the intelligence professionals and the leaders of the intelligence community are supposed to be doing, which is to provide a political, nonpartisan, objective truth to policymakers and, when appropriate, to the American people. And the fact that you have somebody who is such a hyper-partisan and clearly is demonstrating loyalty and fealty to Donald Trump as opposed to upholding his oath of office, um, I can imagine that my former colleagues at CIA and even in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence are just shaking their heads in disgust that we have somebody now at the helm of the United States intelligence community that is misusing and abusing his authorities in the interests of the political objectives and personal objectives of Donald Trump. Let's turn to, to President uh, Trump. Uh, and I wanna ask you the simplest uh, baseline question. Could someone like Donald Trump, a business person with its reckoned by the New York Times over $400 million in personally guaranteed loans coming due, could that person get a security clearance in the U.S. government if he was not president? Well, there aren't too many people with $400 million in debt who apply for security clearances. Um, but I would think that any fair review of a financial statement that indicated tremendous liability and debt uh, would raise red flags in the eyes of those security reviewers who have to make those determinations because you don't wanna have somebody who is deeply in debt and therefore may be looking for ways to get out of that debt by compromising their obligations to the government. And so I think it raises some serious questions about what Donald Trump is doing and has done in order to try to address that debt either while he's president or afterward. 
And so, no, I do not believe that he would qualify for a variety of reasons, not just because of his debt, but because of the other things that he has done and said and behaved uh, throughout his life. Uh, John, let's just assume for, for the moment that uh, Donald Trump is reelected uh, November 3rd. What should citizens think about uh, when they have a, a president reelected to a second term who has that level of indebtedness? What are some of the questions that we should have in our minds that an intelligence officer like you would have in his mind? Well, I quite frankly shudder at the thought of Donald Trump being reelected because I think our country already has gone through some serious harm and damage because of his um, his supposed leadership, which is anything but. But I think Americans should be asking questions about what is he doing because of that indebtedness? What is he doing because of his fear that maybe because of his past financial dealings or because of something that he has done previously, whether it be with Russia or China, might be exposed. And therefore, is he actually carrying out his decisions um, with the eye to either enhancing his personal and financial fortunes, as well as preventing some damaging information from being disclosed that really would, I think, further uh, undermine uh, any pretense he has to being a president of the United States. John, you write in the book a passage that I, I quoted in my review of it in the Washington Post, that during the 2016 election, you told President Obama that the Russian effort to undermine the integrity of the November 2016 election is much more intense, determined, and insidious than any we have seen before. What accounted in your mind for the intensity of the Russian play in that election? Well, I think the Russian attitude uh, about the election started to uh, evolve in the spring of 2016. The Russians have always tried to interfere in U.S. Uh, political environment, either by collecting intelligence or trying to divide us as a country. But as Donald Trump continued to pursue his uh, ambitions to become president and he was going up in the polls and winning primaries, uh, I think uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russians saw that he in fact could be a very attractive uh, candidate from their perspective. Because as I note in the book, I think the Russians prefer uh, to have leaders, particularly of Western democracies, who are businessmen, who are willing to make deals and be transactional and are not driven by principles or ethics um, or what the United States is trying to accomplish uh, as a global leader. And so therefore, I think Donald Trump was a very attractive candidate to them. And they were not just trying to divide us as a country, but uh, as the intelligence community assessment said, they were trying to enhance his prospects of being elected. And so therefore, I think unlike in previous elections, they were able to take advantage again of the growing environment of the digital domain and social media platforms, not just to stir the pot, but also to stir the pot in a way that really was trying to damage Hillary Clinton and enhance the prospects of Donald Trump. And that came into you know, starker relief for me uh, in the July timeframe in particular. And that's why I asked for this immediate meeting with President Obama to tell him what exactly we were seeing. Then I should ask you, are you disappointed that Obama didn't do more in the months after you gave him that briefing, that, that flashing red light, to deter the Russians from additional actions to destabilize our politics? 
Well, 2020 hindsight always provides, I think, greater fidelity uh, than it does at the moment. And at the time, we wanted to understand exactly what the Russians were doing. We were concerned on two fronts. One, what type of technical intrusions they might decide to pursue in order to, for example, bring down voter registration rolls or cause havoc and chaos at the election booths. So there was a technical concern there. The social media and influence operations, I think we've learned a lot more about that as a result of the Mueller report. But when I look back on that time period, President Obama wanted to do everything possible to understand what the Russians were doing, try to deter it, but not try to do anything that might in fact interfere in the election and raise questions about the integrity of the election. President Obama was the titular head of the Democratic Party. His former Secretary of State was running for president. And so therefore, President Obama had to strike this balance between doing everything he could, but without being seen as putting his thumb on the scale of the election. So when I look back on it, we decided not to engage in a cyber uh, rattling of the Russian cages at the time because the Russians could have stepped up their efforts uh, on the technical intrusion side. And we didn't want to spur something like that. So uh, looking back on it now, um, you know, should we have uh, put out more of a clarion call to the American electorate uh, that the Russians were trying to interfere? I like to think yes, um, because um, I didn't anticipate at the time that Donald Trump was going to be elected. Um, and if we thought he was going to be elected, would President Obama authorize additional things? Uh, I think only President Obama knows the answer to that question. Let me venture near the deep water uh, here, uh, John. Many of Obama's, uh, excuse me, many of President Trump's critics uh, have wondered whether the Russians had something on him, uh, in quotation marks. Uh, and I'm wondering whether you, as CIA director, ever conducted a real counterintelligence investigation that would address that question a back room where you, the level of secrecy, confidentiality was extreme, even by C CIA standards. Did you ever do that in the case of Trump to see if there'd ever been an approach or uh, a moment where he might have uh, uh, been subject to, to that kind of pressure? Well, the authorities of the CIA and of a CIA director are focused on foreign intelligence. Uh, we could pursue uh, what the Russians were doing and try to understand that and try to collect intelligence against uh, those efforts. But we have no authority to try to investigate any U.S. person. And so whenever we would collect intelligence about Russian attempts to interfere in the election and try to cultivate relationships and contacts, with members affiliated with the Trump campaign, we would pass that information immediately to the FBI for their follow-up counterintelligence investigation. Now, the CIA and the FBI do conduct counterintelligence investigations together when the CIA is intimately involved in, let's say, the pursuit of a spy within our midst. But to for the CIA to try to look at what a presidential candidate is doing or has done and look into that background and pull those threads, that wasn't our um, responsibility, nor did we have the authority to do that. That was the FBI's job. And, and to follow up on that, do you think that we, the American public, will, will ever know with confidence the answer to the question, what, what was going on, if anything, between uh, Russians, Russian 
intelligence services and, and Donald Trump. Or will this be one of those questions that just ends up not being resolved in people's minds? I think of the Kennedy assassination so many years later, people still have so many different views. Do you think it's possible to get to a hard, clear, accepted answer? I think there's a lot more to be known, and I th think a lot more will be known, especially after Donald Trump leaves the protective cocoon of the office of the presidency. Those financial strings were never pulled in terms of what Donald Trump was doing with uh, Russia or other countries around the world. Uh, he has hidden his taxes, um, and the Mueller team never pursued that. And I do think those financial links and um, uh, activities really provide great insight for law enforcement as well as intelligence officials when they're going after terrorists or proliferators or organized crime. And so once these uh, contacts and these activities are revealed, and I believe they will be, we'll know a lot more about what Donald Trump has done in his past. And also I believe we're going to learn what it is that he has been trying to hide from the American people. Let me turn to another aspect of the of the Russia issue, and, and that's the very aggressive uh, operations tempo of the GRU, the Russian military intelligence unit that was involved in hacking the DNC and other operations in 2016, but has continued with its very aggressive actions. Uh, a particular unit of, of the GRU, uh, Unit 74455, is alleged to have offered bounties for American coalition forces in Afghanistan. You've been watching Russia for a long time, uh, John. Do you see a, a change in how the GRU and other Russian services are operating under, under Vladimir Putin. They seem sometimes to have taken the gloves off, if you can forgive that phrase, and to be doing things that, that were not typically done by their services or ours. Uh, give us a sense of, of what's going on with the GRU. Well, the GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence organization, is large, it has uh, strong cyber capabilities, and it is very aggressive, as you point out. Also, I think it's a bit sloppy. It's sloppier than its counterparts, uh, the domestic counterparts, uh, the FSB in Russia, as well as this, basically the CIA equivalent in Russia, which is the SVR. Uh, but the GRU has a very rapacious appetite as far as gathering, collecting information, and then also trying to push some things out. And so I, I do think that um, because of the growing capabilities within that digital domain, that the Russians have a sophisticated capability to implement, uh, we see more and more evidence, not just here in the United States, but in other countries around the world, of the GRU's activities. Uh, they, in some respects, have almost a sort of an unbridled, uh, you know, authority and efforts. Uh, and uh, as the Mueller report revealed, we found out a lot about what the GRU was doing in the 2016 election. We found out about it afterward. And I do think the GRU now has tried to learn lessons and maybe is trying to conceal some of their activities. But uh, you're right. I think uh, Vladimir Putin sees that cyber digital environment as the venue to ply uh, Russia's intelligence uh, skills and trade. And we're going to continue to see this in the, in the years ahead and not just on elections, in other areas as well. 
So let's imagine that Vice President Biden wins the election on, on November 3rd, and he comes to you and he says, uh, Director Brennan, you know, you've been running U.S. intelligence for a, a while. You know the Russians. You had a back channel. You've described this in, in your book, Undaunted, a, a back channel with the head, I believe, of the Russian FSB service. Uh, and and, uh, and President-elect Biden says, I want your advice, John, about whether we need to reopen channels to Russia and, and begin some kind of dialogue that gets us back to a more normal relationship. Would you think that's a good idea? And would you put any conditions on it, given all that's passed between the two of us? Well, I think it's always a good idea to keep those channels of communication, particularly on the intelligence world, uh, open, even when political and bilateral tensions are high, uh, because I think that dialogue is critically important. And so I would advise a, a President Biden that they need to try to reinvigorate those discussions at the intelligence level and also at the policy level in order to have a airing of views and grievances, as well as you point out, what are the steps that are necessary for Russia to take for us to be able to have a better, more productive relationship with Moscow. I believe a good relationship, or at least a cordial relationship between Moscow and Washington is very much in our interests as well as in global interests. But also, I think Vice President Biden is going to repair uh, our, our relationships with our allies and partners around the world as a way to present a more united front against the Russians and Vladimir Putin. And once the Russians realize that the United States is going to reassert itself on that global stage and brings with it those alliances and partnerships that really strengthen our position, I think uh, our ability to actually get the Russians to change some of their activities and behaviors uh, will increase. Let's talk about one of those uh, traditional partnerships in which you were deeply involved, and that is the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Do you think that it's possible for a future Biden administration, if he's elected in, in November, to have a meaningful reset uh, with Saudi Arabia, which is effectively governed by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, he has taken you on as a personal uh, enemy. There's been a campaign on Saudi Twitter claiming that uh, you, John Brennan, Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, others were, were conspiring to place uh, his predecessor as Crown Prince Mohammed uh, bin Nayef as king. Um, that, that doesn't make it easy for a rapprochement, but, but do you think there's a path back to a, a better U.S.-Saudi relationship and describe what that path would require? Well, first of all, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Nayef was the crown prince and he was displaced by Mohammed bin Salman. And so Mohammed bin Salman is the one who uh, changed the order of succession in Saudi Arabia. Mohammed Salman is a quintessential authoritarian leader. Uh, yes, there have been some reforms in Saudi Arabia uh, under his leadership that have been positive, you know, increased mixing of the genders and reducing some of these social mores uh, in Saudi Arabia. But also he has very aggressively tried to uh, suppress um, uh, people who speak out against a lot of his authoritarian practices, people have been incarcerated and people have been maltreated, including women activists in Saudi Arabia. So yes, I will continue to speak out against Mohammed bin Salman, who, according to uh, reports, 
the CIA has determined with moderate confidence was responsible for the horrific killing and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi, one of your colleagues at the Washington Post. And so I do believe that uh, we need to have a good relationship with Saudi Arabia. That is in our strategic interests. Uh, but uh, Mohammed bin Salman really needs to be held to account for what he has done inside of Saudi Arabia, what he did to Jamal. Um, and I do believe that a Biden administration is going to make it clear to the Saudi leadership that as long as Mohammed Salman continues along this path, it's going to be very difficult to repair the relationship to the point that we need to. And I do think that we need to curtail uh, the support for the Saudi military adventurism in Yemen that has led to thousands upon thousands of uh, civilian deaths. I do think that there are things that we need to do in, in order to show our displeasure, even curtailing some of the support to uh, Saudi Arabia's military. But uh, the fact that the Trump administration has given Mohammed bin Salman a pass for these human rights atrocities is uh, just uh, unconscionable. And I do think uh, Vice President Biden, when he becomes president, is going to uh, make a, a change in that uh, practice. John, let me pull the camera back for a last uh, couple of questions before we 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 have to have to to leave. Uh, we've been living through a period of, of unusual partisanship, obviously, and some intense at attacks on the intelligence community uh, by President Trump and his allies as part of a deep state that uh, seeks uh, its own aims as opposed to those of the countries. What effect does that kind of barrage of criticism have on career officers at CIA? And what do you think the consequences of this are going to be long term? Well, I think it's certainly demoralizing as the women and men of CIA and of the rest of the intelligence and law enforcement communities work around the clock at great risk and personal sacrifice. And the fact that a Donald Trump would denigrate their work, their profession, their institutions, uh, clearly has to have a very damaging impact on their their enthusiasm for the trying to support who basically is the first customer. Uh, never in my 33 years or so of working for six presidents did any of them disrespect these professionals uh, the way Donald Trump has. And so I'm sure it is demoralizing, but I think they also are very resilient. And I think they are just waiting to have somebody in the White House who is going to want and value and respect their work and the products that they provide to the policymakers. I also very very concerned about the impact it's having on young Americans who are looking at these professions, uh, the diplomatic corps, the intelligence, law enforcement, and military careers. And they're saying to themselves, is this really what I want to do if we have the commander in chief denigrating to such an extent their work? And so I, I do think it's harmful. I think the impact is going to last beyond uh, Donald Trump's presidency. But I, I have confidence that, uh, again, the communities are going to be resilient and they're going to respond very positively to the words of encouragement that they're going to be hearing from uh, President Biden and the rest of his national security team. So in the two minutes or so we have left, let me ask you a, a final question. Looking back over these years since you left as, as CIA director, uh, you have been, as your book title says, undaunted uh, in, in voicing your criticism of, of President Trump and of other things that trouble you. 
looking back, uh, do you think that uh, sometimes you have gone further than you should have? Or put a different way, do you think there's a cost to uh, the CIA in terms of perceptions of its independence from politics when former directors speak out as forcefully as you have? Well, I think certainly people who have these um, illusions and delusions of a deep state will use my words and my comments that I'm making publicly as a way to just reinforce their argument. But um, I don't believe I am uh, engaging in politics at all. Um, I am, as a private citizen, I think fulfilling my civic responsibility to call out uh, officials, including a president of the United States, who has so dishonored the office. And so, yes, it has come at some personal cost to me as people uh, try to maybe separate themselves from me, believing that I am tainted in the eyes of this administration. But uh, I am very fortunate that my parents taught me at a very young age that uh, integrity and honesty are so critically important in whatever you do in life. And yes, I have been outspoken. Uh, I will continue to be outspoken as long as Donald Trump continues to, to trample the tenets of our democracy and what I believe is the essence of this great country of ours, which is to demonstrate leadership uh, around the globe and to have someone in the White House who really is going to be that, that shining light for the rest of America and try to unite us and ensure that we reach our full potential as a country of tremendous uh, capability and tremendous resources. And especially since we are the melting pot of the world, the fact that uh, we come together as Americans uh, should be what is driving a president of the United States and unfortunately, Donald Trump has only fueled divisions within our society. I want to thank uh, Director Brennan, uh, former director of the CIA, for coming on with us this morning. The book is called Undaunted. Uh, it's been on the bestseller list. Uh, and uh, uh, as you can see by my heavily annotated version, uh, worth uh, reading carefully. So thank you very much, John, for spending the time with us and talking so frankly about issues that matter to all of us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.